Well, the last few weeks have been interesting. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Maggie Jacobs uh, wrote me a text and said, hey, the stuff that we've been going through in Exodus has been really helpful for a class we're doing in, at Trinity. She said, we're looking at the literary style of the letter of Exodus, and some of what we're talking to about relates directly to that class. Well, ironically, just this past week, I helped my own son, Grant, study for a test on the life of Moses. I told him, son, you got to do good on this test. <laughs> I'm going to be all torn up inside. And then we had small group on Sunday, and I learned that we have several in our church family who are involved in Christ in the Arts. They had a big 10-year uh, performance this last weekend on, guess what? The story of Exodus. So my question as I hear these things is, what's so, why is this so popular? What's so important about the story of Exodus? Because apparently there's a lot of people who are interested in this, and, and so there must be a reason. And I have thought about that, and I have my own opinion on that. I think that the story of Exodus is so popular because in the end, it is a parable of God's promise. It, it tells the story that our heart desperately longs to hear because we know firsthand what it's like to be caught in the slavery of sin, to be in that situation where there is no way of escape, right? There, there's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to break free from the stronghold of sin that enslaves us. It's an impossible situation, much like the Israelites faced when they stood at the Red Sea, as we talked about last week. But when they were in that impossible situation, God provided a way, a way of escape. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The crossing of the Red Sea ultimately points to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's our place of redemption. But the story doesn't end there. In fact, you could even say that that's where the story begins. <laughs> Much like the Israelites, we live in a wilderness of a world. And as we travel in this world and spend time in a place that's ultimately not our home, we see all kinds of uh, distractions and disappointments and difficulties. We encounter things that expose our, our weaknesses and our flaws. It's easy to become fearful and lose perspective. And yet God can take all those things, all those experiences and use them for his good and perfect purpose. In fact, he will allow trials to enter into our life to test our faith. And what we need to understand is that test is not to see us fail. It is to prove that he is faithful. If there's anything else I want you to hear this morning, I want you to hear that over and over again. God tests our faith to strengthen our faith, not to see us fail, but to show us that He is faithful. That's what we're going to learn together this morning as we encounter the Israelites, as they work their way through the wilderness, and we're going to see they find themselves grumbling a whole lot as they encounter these tests of faith. And what's real important for us as we look at these tests of faith is that these are the very same questions that God asks of us in our life. 
do we have faith in His promise? Do we have faith in His provision? Do we see life from His perspective? And do we believe in His presence? Now, I don't know if you ever had this gift whenever you were in school, but on rare occasions, I would have a teacher who would say, look, we've got a test coming up on Friday. Here's the deal. Here are the questions on the test. If you'll put in the time and the work to look at these questions and find the answers and study off that as your study guide, you're going to do just fine. That was a gift whenever that happened, right? Well, God has essentially done the very same thing for you and I. He's given us the test where we know what the questions are, and he's provided us the answers. In fact, Paul makes that explicit. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul has been looking through events that we've been talking about. He's talked about the, the cloud by day and the fire by night. He's talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. He, he's talking about the grumblings in the desert, which we'll look at this morning. And then listen to what he says in verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example for you. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, if you don't want to fail the test, then take the time to look at the study guide. It has all the questions and all the answers. And if you'll look at that, you're going to do just fine. Because in the end, they're for our good. To strengthen our faith and to show that God is so very faithful. That's been the purpose all along. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for being so gracious to us. What a, what a good teacher who says, there's a test on Friday. But I'm going to give you the questions that are going to be on the test and the answers as well. And if you'll study those, you're going to be just fine. Because in the end, you want us to see how faithful you are. Faithful to your promises, to your provision, to the perspective of what you, and what you see in us and about us, and to your presence that is always with us. So Father, I pray that as we look at the life of the Israelites, that like Paul has encouraged us, that we would take note of what they did and their example being set for our instruction that we would take heed lest we fall. Father, guide us as we look at your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. We're going to pick up where we left off last, so if you want to, begin uh, following along in verse 22. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went out three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to, the, to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, if you've ever been in the wilderness, been backpacking or anything like that, you know that three days without water is not a good thing, okay? This situation that they're in, that they're concerned about, is worthy of their concern. You can't go too much longer unless you can find some water. And so, it made me think of this summer. 
when we had our backpacking trip with the students. You'll remember this, right? That first day, Zach, was really, really hard. Why was it hard? We were all uphill. We were trying to get off of a ridge because of the safety of being down in the valley. But we had to walk a long way because we needed to get to water. Okay? So in some ways, I can relate to what's going on, and you can too, because this is a desperate situation. And I can tell you on that day, there was not a person who was on that trip who wasn't grumbling. (laughs) We were tired. We were thirsty. And I even will admit to you today that I was thinking in my mind, these guides better know what they're doing because they're about to make this the most miserable experience any of us have ever had before, right? That's exactly what's happening in this account with the Israelites. And to make matters worse for them, they actually come upon water and probably think, oh, thank goodness, go to drink the water and it's contaminated. It's bitter. It's not going to do anything to satisfy their thirst. And so what do they do? Like me, they turn to their leaders and said, what are you doing? How are you going to get us out of this situation? Now, keep in mind the difference between the Israelites and our experience is they had a cloud by day and a fire by night. (laughs) They had a visual representation of God's presence with them, but they complained to Moses and never say anything to God. And so Moses sets an example for them that they should have followed in the first place. Look at verse 25. Then he, Moses, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. God answered this this prayer of Moses by turning something bitter into something sweet. This wasn't just good, clean water. It was a dessert. I mean, this was a treat. In the midst of their grumbling, God gave them something sweet. Now, isn't that grace? And that grace is going to then introduce them to the first question on the test. And is this, will you have faith in my promise? Look at the end of verse 25 again and follow along. And there he tested them and he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. See, God knew that this was a teachable moment. The Israelites had encountered a problem and they did not turn to him. And God knew that this would not be the only problem that they would face. So he says, I want you to learn from this experience. And here's my promise. If you will listen to my word, if you will receive my commandments, and then if you'll walk in obedience, I promise I will be your healer. Test question number one, will you believe my promise? Now, if you're reading this, you may be thinking like I was, 
be your healer. What does he mean by that? Because as far as I know, nobody's sick. It hasn't said anything about anybody being sick and, and needing to be healed. So what does he mean? I will be your healer. Well, I think it is a reflection of what we know from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. What God is trying to teach them, what he wants them to learn is for, for the Israelites to trust him more than they trust themselves. He wants them to lean on his word more than their own understanding. Why? Because their heart is sick, just like yours and mine, and it cannot be trusted. So we have to go to a source greater than the one that we possess on our own. And God has told us, if you will listen to my word, if you will receive those commandments, and then if you'll walk in obedience, I promise I will bring healing to your sick and sinful, corrupted heart. You see, our obedience is a reflection of our belief. So, how do we answer this first question? Do you have faith in God's promise? Well, you answer it by aligning your life with the truth of God's word. That's where your heart finds healing. And that's how you know if you've answered the question correctly. Have you aligned your life with the truth of God's word? Okay, now to the second question. Look at verse 27. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and water of, uh, and, and 70 date palms. And they camped there beside the waters. Then they sent out from Elam and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Leaving those bitter waters, they go to a place called Elam. We learn that there's water and food in abundance. Seventy date palms, uh, 12 springs of water. When we were in Israel, we saw sites like this. And it was strange to be driving through the middle of this barren desert. And all of a sudden, you'd look off and you would see a, a grove of date trees. And they look like palm trees. And the fruit hangs down from them in huge bunches. I mean, like this big. I mean, they're amazing sights, springs coming out of the ground, and you're thinking, where in the world did this come from? So that's exactly what these people are experiencing, one of these desert oases. And we would expect, as the Scripture tells us in Deuteronomy, they stayed there for a while, a few weeks, enjoying the plenty that God had provided them. Well, here's the problem, though. Once it was time to move on and to leave that abundance behind, now, all of a sudden, they believe that they deserved it all the time. And one of the reasons we know that is because the whole congregation, okay, this includes everyone, not just a few select people here and there, but the whole congregation 
grumbled against Moses. Now, that's the second time we've heard the word grumble, and it won't be the last. It's going to show up repeatedly. So let's make sure we know what this word is intended to communicate. Because in our English translation, we've lost some of the intensity. What I can assure you is that a grumble is not a quiet complaint. Isn't that what we think of when we hear grumble? Kind of a quiet complaint. That's not what this is. In the original language, the word grumble is an open rebellion. So in your mind's eye, what I want you to picture here is a mutiny against Moses. That's what's happening. The entire congregation is turning on Moses. Now, their complaints said more about their heart than their circumstances, because I want you to keep in mind, when they left Egypt, they had lots of livestock. So if you have sheep and goats and, and, and lambs and cattle and all the things that they must have had, that means you have what? Milk. You can make cheese. You've got an abundance of meat should you need meat to eat. So the problem wasn't the absence of food. They had what they needed. They were complaining about what they craved. The reason we know that's true is because of what the psalmist says in chapter 78. Don't look there. I can turn there for you. But listen to what it says. Chapter 78, verse 17, if you want to look it up later. Psalm 78, verse 17. says this. Yet they still continued to sin against him, God, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. Speaking exactly of the experience we were just talking about. This is the deal. Their heart, in their heart, they put God to the test by demanding food they craved. They had what they needed. They were complaining about what they craved. <laughs> the issue in their heart was discontent. And they were complaining to Moses, but the truth of the matter is they were really complaining to God. That's where the issue is. See, to put it bluntly, they felt like they deserved more. In fact, they even go as far as to look back and reminisce to the good old days back in Egypt when we had pots full of meat and bread to the full. Those were the good old days, right? Oh, the heart. The heart is so deceptive and desperately sick. So, will they have faith in God's provision? That's the question. Look at chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Again, what incredible grace that in the midst of all the grumbling and uh, complaining, God gives them food in abundance, everything that they need, each and every day. The question is, will they trust in his provision? Will it be enough? It, Moses doesn't want them to miss or overlook the issue that really is going on behind their complaint. It's an issue of the heart. So look at what he says in verse 8. And Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against who? Him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. 
They may be complaining to Moses, but their issue is with God. You see, when we take out our frustrations on people, very often our issue is not with people. Our issue is with God. They're attacking Moses, but when they look back on that life in Egypt and and, and somehow suggest that life was better before they were saved, life was better before they were married, life was better if they had a different family, a different job. You see where I'm going with this? Now, they had everything they needed because it's exactly what God provided. And yet they complained because they weren't getting what they craved. That's an offense to God. Look at how he continues in verse 12. I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. He's going to do something miraculous, so there's no question. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there were fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on, a, on the ground. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it up, every man, as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer of peace according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much, some gathered little. But when they measured it all with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess. He had gathered little, had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. So again, despite their complaining, God provided them richly. He gave them meat by giving them quail in the evening and then in the morning a a day's worth of bread. He gave them each enough for everyone to have what they needed. It says that some gathered a lot, some gathered a little. Nobody had to fight for their fair share because when it was all said and done, everyone had just what they needed. And he went on to tell them to, to, to gather every day, but gather nothing more than what you need. He was very specific to, to gather only a daily portion because that was part of the test. Now, you probably are not going to learn this in Dave Ramsey's uh, study this uh, week, if this is what you're going through, because basically what God is saying is no savings accounts. Don't put anything back for a rainy day. I want you to trust that I'm going to give you daily exactly what you need for that day. Now look at verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. See, God wants them wants to build their faith in his provision. He wants them to learn that he is faithful, to do what he promises, to provide what he says. But some just couldn't stand it. (laughs) They had to put some away for the next day just in case. Just in case God gets distracted and somehow doesn't come through. I mean, after all, he's got a whole universe to rule, right? So what if he forgets a day? 
They took matters into their own hands just to try to give God a hand. But here's the reality. When we hoard things for ourselves, what it reveals is that ultimately we do not trust God. When we hoard things for ourselves, we do not trust God. And not only that, if I don't believe in God's provision for me, then what's the likelihood that I'm going to share with you? You see, that shared dependence on God's faithful provision is what provided the groundwork for loving community. That's part of the lesson. Because everyone had just what they needed. So do you have faith in God's provision? That question is answered by your contentment with what you have and your willingness to share with someone else. That's how you know the answer. So two questions. How are we doing so far on the test? Two questions. Now the third question. Do you have faith in God's perspective? Look at verse 21. And they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now it came about on the sixth day that they gathered twice the amount of bread, two omers for each one. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to keep until the morning. So immediately we see a a miracle taking place here because what happened when they tried to carry over food without following God's instruction to do so? It ruined, right? Worms ate it, it became infested, it was nasty. But now when they do what he tells them, it carries over and preserves just fine. You'll notice that the people did exactly what Moses instructed them to do in verse 22. But then in verse 23, Moses goes to explain why they just did what the Lord told them to do. And he talks to them specifically about the Sabbath. The reason that's important is because they had no idea what that was. They had no idea what it meant to keep the Sabbath holy. Why? There is no Sabbath for slaves. There's no Sabbath for slaves. They don't get a day off for worship. They work every day because they're ruled by a man who doesn't care about their God. And so this is foreign territory for them. But here's why it's important from God's perspective. He's using them, he's using the Sabbath to teach them about their identity from his point of view. He wants them to view themselves from his perspective. They are people of God, no longer slaves of Pharaoh. The Sabbath is a tool to help them understand, and here's why. Because on the Sabbath, you're no longer defined by what you do. You're defined by whose you are. On the Sabbath, you're no longer defined by what you do. You're defined by whose you are. Which is why God set aside the day to be holy. To recognize in graciousness and gratitude all that God has given to us. To worship Him for His provision, for His promises. To enjoy the fellowship of what it means to be a people of God who have just enough 
for what we need when we put everything together as he intends us to. You see, busyness says that it all depends on me. I've got to keep those plates spinning. I've got to be productive because my value and my self-worth is determined by what I do. And if I don't do something, then who am I? The Sabbath says you're not defined by what you do. You're defined by whose you are. And in that, you can rest. Because from God's perspective, he's helping you become everything he created you to be. And so he wants you to turn your attention to him, to worship him for his graciousness, to live in gratitude of his provision, and to trust that he's got it. That it doesn't depend on you. That it depends on him, and he's got it. And that's a place where you can rest. So, do you have faith in God's perspective? Do you view life from God's point of view? Well, ultimately, that question is answered on the Sabbath. Can you rest in his sovereign control and be defined not by what you do, but by whose you are? Look at verse 26. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. And it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day, just as God intended. Resting on the Sabbath is ultimately a test of faith. God will strengthen our faith when we learn to protect the sanctity of that day. Because in the end, busyness feeds our ego. Sabbath feeds our soul. So ultimately, how you answer that question is determined by what you do on the Sabbath. Now for the final question. Do you have faith in God's presence? Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Hmm, they've been here before. Let's see if they learned. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people a little more, and they will stone me? I want you to make sure you get the picture of what's happening here. <laughs> the Israelites are no longer just grumbling with Moses. You see, now they're quarreling. Their hostility has reached a whole new level to the point where Moses is legitimately fear fearful for his life. He's concerned that their anger has let, reached a level that they're just going to kill him. They're going to stone him to get rid of him. Once again, they're complaining to Moses, but their issue is with God. Why? Because he's the one that provided the water in the first place. 
They don't have water. Instead of turning to God, they again take matters into their own hands. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with you, which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he named the place Massa and Mirabah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That was their ultimate question. Knowing that, God told Moses to get the leaders of Israel to come to a place, and he made a promise. He says, I will be there with you. I will make my presence known. And he did that by allowing Moses to strike the rock, and water pours out of it. This is a miracle that nobody's going to deny because there's no reason that water should come out of a rock. But that's exactly what happened. And so God reveals his presence through the provision of miraculous water. Now, you don't need to turn there, but remember in the beginning I told you about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul is looking at some of the events. And when he looks at this particular event, I want you to listen to what he says. And they all drink the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Paul says that Christ was ultimately the source of the supernatural water. See, just like in the desert, God's provision is made visible through the miraculous. Which is the reason that when the Bible talks about Jesus, it says his name is Emmanuel. God with us. So if you want to know proof, if you want to see proof of whether God is with us or not, then look no further than the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He is the miraculous provision for what our heart longs for most. You see, there has never, ever, since the creation of the world, been a time where God has not been near. Ever. Grant and I were, had a memory verse this week. I won't test you on it because I'm not sure I can remember. Psalm 46.1 says, God is my refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. And when we talked about that verse together, we talked about what ever-present means. It means he's always there. He's never not near. And therefore, I have no reason fear so do you have faith in God's presence well the answer to that question is based in fear or not if you believe God is near you won't have fear if you believe God is near you won't have fear that's how you answer that question now as I told you in the beginning God is using these tests to build the faith of the Israelites. You'll recall when we talked about this passage through the desert, they didn't take the shortest route, did they? 
there was a much quicker route to go from Egypt to, to Canaan, but God led them down a different way because he knew, the scripture tells us, that they wouldn't be ready for the opposition he knew they would face. He needed time to test them, to prove that he was faithful so that when something happened that he would need them for, they would learn that he is faithful. Well, that time has come. Look at chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held up his hand, the Israelites prevailed. And when he let his hand down... Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took the, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and her, her supported his hands, so on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sunset. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial, and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek, from under heaven. And Moses built an author, altar and, and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord didn't lead them down the shortest path. He knew that they were going to encounter opposition. He just needed time to prepare them for that. It's not a matter of if, but when. Now, the Amaleks, as we learned from Deuteronomy, were pretty sneaky in what they did. Again, you don't need to turn there, but you can write down Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17, because it's going to give us a little inside information of what exactly these people did. It says, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt? How he met you along the way and attacked you all the... Let me back up. And how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary because he did not fear God. Amalek attacked them from the rear where all the stragglers were gathered who were weak and weary and vulnerable. What a coward. And so that's why Moses says, all right, it's time. Joshua, get men together so that we can rally the troops and defend ourselves against the Amalekites. And we know the story. When Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. When he got tired and dropped them, they began to lose ground. And so uh, Aaron and Hur helped hold up his hands. And you'll notice that Moses was on the hillside so that everybody could see him. They knew what was going on. And in the end, the Israelites prevailed. So Moses built an altar as a memorial to what took place on this day. And he wrote on the memorial, the Lord is our banner. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first hear that, I'm thinking, I don't understand. The Lord is our banner. What exactly does that mean? Well, in ancient times, the banner was uh, literally a flag that was brought to war and would be lofted up on a very tall pole. Because on that flag was an insignia or colors or something that would represent a people group. And that flag was intended to, to kind of orient the soldiers and be a rallying point for the fighters. 
It was an emblem of hope. And they take that understanding and Moses uses it to say, the Lord is our banner, our emblem of hope. We rally around him because he is our strength. You see, Moses wanted them to understand by placing himself very visibly on the hillside that that battle against the Amalekites was not going to be won based on the strength of the soldiers. That battle was ultimately won because of the faith in the living God. That's why he worked so hard to test them to prove that he was faithful so that when the battle rages, they would look to him. The battle is ultimately won by faith. So, listen up, my fellow exiles, in the wilderness of the world in which we live. A world filled with distractions and difficulties. We have all kinds of of things that attack us when we're most vulnerable, when we're most weak. He will test our faith, but not to see us fail but instead to prove that he is faithful. He wants us to believe in his promise, to to trust in him and his word with with all our heart and to lean not on our own understanding because our heart is sick and and we can't trust ourselves. We've got to put our trust in God. He, He wants us to believe in his provision that even though we may have just what we need, even though it may not be everything we want, God is faithful to provide. We will have just what we need, even if it's not everything that we want. And when we are a people of God, we take care of each other so that everyone has just enough. That's part of the lesson. He wants us to see life from his perspective, to know that we're not defined by what we do. We're defined by whose we are. We don't let busyness feed our ego by proving how productive and important we are because we can set that aside and rest simply and completely on who we are in God's sight. And that's a good place to find rest. He wants us to believe in his presence so that we would not be a people who are ruled by fear when we know that God is ever-present. He is always near. As we think about these tests that the Israelites went through, I hope it adjusts your perspective of what it means to be tested by God. Because I don't know about you, but for much of my life, I thought of a a test as a way that God was going to put the screws to me. You know, kind of get me under and see see me squirm. That's not a biblical picture at all. In fact, you see God's grace in the midst of their grumbling over and over again. (laughs) He didn't just give them water. He gave them sweet water. He didn't just provide for them once. He provided for them daily everything that they needed. He was testing them not to see them fail, but to prove that he is faithful. That's what it's all about. Because in the end, when that battle rages, we need to look to the cross. That's our emblem of hope. Jesus is our banner. That's where we rally. That's where we come together. 
That's where we find hope. And not only that, think of everything that the Israelites are learning that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. He's the living water. And when you drink from him, you never thirst again because he satisfies the deepest needs of your heart. He's the bread of life. The one that is is there to feed you and give you exactly what you need every day. Because here's the reality. He knows what's coming before you do. And so he promises, if you trust him, to give you just what you need, the capacity that is necessary to face whatever you will encounter in a given day. He's the bread of life that nourishes our souls. He's the emblem of hope and who we rally around. I hope that when we look at what's happening in the life of the Israelites, we don't lose sight of what's happening in the life of Melanie Park Church and the people of God who have assembled in this place. I hope that we have a renewed perspective of what this day is supposed to be about. I mean, we don't just come here to to sing songs and to to do the things that we do just because there's nothing better to do on Sunday. This is a privilege of God's people because we don't have to be defined by what we do. We can rest in the importance of who we are in His sight. We are valuable, so much so that He gave His life on our behalf. And we can rest in His forgiveness. That's a good place to be. So when you leave this morning, know that you don't leave his presence. That he is never not near. He is ever present. A refuge and a strength in times of trouble. Therefore, you don't have to fear. Find that peace in him. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for just... (laughs) Why is Exodus so, so popular? Because <clears throat> it's so relevant to our life. It's our story. You're telling our story. And you're telling it in a way that we can see the questions of the tests that we will encounter. And not just the questions, the answers to those questions. So that when we study and understand what it looks like from your perspective, we're going to be okay. We can believe in your promises that those commandments are not there to restrict us, they're there to protect us. That you're not trying to rob us, you're trying to give us life to the fullest. And if we can trust you, that's what we'll experience from you. Father, your provision is faithful. You give us every day just what we need to encounter that day for the things that we don't see coming. And even in our weakest and most vulnerable moments, we can turn to look to you, our emblem of hope, and know that you're enough that you're going to give us what we need. And Father, thank you for giving us a picture of what it looks like to see ourselves from your perspective so that we don't spend so much of our time trying to earn your love, trying to earn your favor, to somehow look good in your eyes because when we put our faith and trust in you, we are made perfect through the life of Jesus Christ, his righteousness credited to us, and that is perfection. So today in particular, may we be mindful of how you see us. Not because of what we do, but because of whose we are. And may we always be mindful of your presence, that you're always near, ever present. And that when you're near, we don't have to fear because you're our refuge and our strength. What great truth for us to take home today. And I pray that we share it with someone else.
who needs to hear it this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.